0: Good morning let me invite you to open your copy of God's word to um, mark chapter 11 mark chapter 11 uh, encourage you to have a copy of it in front of you so you can follow along uh, with us today mark uh, chapter 11 verses 11 through 21. I uh, normally start out reading the whole passage, and that is not only to make you familiar with the verses we're going to look at today, but today in particular, you need to see the whole passage together, uh, because I think it doesn't make sense unless you see it all as a single unit. So the unit I'm referring to is verses 11 uh, through verse 21. So I'm going to read that for us as we begin today. Hear the word of the Lord. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. The word of God, may he bless what we've just read and help us as we look into these verses. Let's ask for his help now. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Give us clear minds to understand your truth today. Pray that your spirit would be present, that he would fill us afresh, and not only quicken me, give me clarity of mind and clear words and a strong throat. Lord, I pray that you would quicken your body today, that they would not just hear words, but hear your truth Uh, Christ Jesus, that you would be honored and glorified among us, that your name would be lifted up. Uh, Savior, be glorified among us as we just sang. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. It's an unusual passage we uh, come to today, an account where Jesus actually seems to display an irrational outburst of anger. You can even say he loses his temper. Uh, and demonstrates unrestrained fury. This has really bothered some people who've read this account, uh, really uh, disturbed them, uh, his actions in these verses. And they've criticized uh, Jesus for his actions in these verses. One was a very well-known atheist named Bertrand Russell wrote a famous book called, Why I'm Not a Christian?, And Russell accused Jesus of, quote, vindictive fury for blaming the tree for not producing figs out of season. He said the whole episode tarnished the character of Jesus, Uh, uh, one author writing about Russell said, the whole episode tarnished the character of Jesus in Russell's opinion, who wrote, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. There are even those who were, weren't enemies of Christianity, as Russell was, who, who found these verses offensive. Uh, one man wrote that this story seems out of character for Jesus. It's a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill-temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. As it stands, it is simply incredible. And by that he means unbelievable. Another called Jesus' actions a, a gross injustice on a tree which was guilty of no wrong and had but performed its natural functions. A lot of concern about the tree, isn't there? And maybe you've never thought of it. But what Jesus does to this tree and what he does in the temple really does seem out of character. Parallel passage said that he made a whip, drove people out. Not uh, exactly Jesus' meek and mild that we've, uh, many of us have been taught to believe in. So how do we make sense of this puzzling account? Uh, How do we come to understand it? How do we explain what seems like a a loss of temper from Jesus? I believe we can make sense of it by understanding three pairs found in these verses. There are three pairs of things. And if you do the math, you'll discover that's six things altogether, uh, two at a time. And by understanding these pairs, I believe we'll come to understand what's really happening here. So let's look at the first pair. Uh, the first pair we encounter is two inspections. Uh, the first pair consists of two inspections. In verses 11 through 13, we'll see Jesus inspecting both the temple in Jerusalem as well as the fig tree. But he starts out uh, inspecting the temple we see this first inspection in verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The editors of uh, the ESV place verse 11 uh, with the previous account that we looked at last Sunday, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And you might recall he's approaching Jerusalem from the east. He's been on his way for quite a long time now. And as he gets near the city, they pause and he sends his Galilean, sends two of his disciples to fetch a, a colt of a donkey from one of the villages. And they return it to the Lord. They commandeer. He's, his right is king to commandeer this cult of a donkey. And, and then quite deliberately, Jesus mounts the cult and rides it the rest of the way, openly and deliberately fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah and presenting himself as Israel's deliverer, the Messiah. And he's given a hero's welcome, both by his supporters uh, from Galilee, as well as by people coming out of the city of Jerusalem, waving palm branches uh, before him. And it's at the end of that day, at the end, uh, after he's made his triumphal entry, we get to the action of verse 11. Jesus went into the temple, and it says he looked around at everything. Very uh, simple, uh, and it might give us the impression that not much took place. In fact, many see verse 11 as a real anticlimax from verse, uh, verses 1 through 10. Big, big uh, to do about Jesus, the Messiah, coming into the city of Jerusalem. And then kind of uh, uh, a yawn in verse 11. Uh, nothing quite seems to happen. It seems like a big letdown. But As I mentioned last week, verse 11 goes better with what's following. Uh, He goes into the temple, and the word temple here is not a reference, as you might think, to the sanctuary. Uh, I realize these are small photos. Uh, They're not really photos at all, are they? Uh, These are small drawings um, and if you're towards the back, you can simply turn around and look at the back screen if you want. Uh, By temple, many of us would be thinking of this building right here, uh, the, uh, the sanctuary, uh, which contained the holy place. And then uh, back further in is this room called the Holy of Holies, uh, where the high priest would enter and sprinkle blood on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant once a year to atone for Israel's sins. The word temple is not what this is referring to, not this building. This word temple refers to the entire temple complex. And you can see it's quite spread out. Uh, it's a very large complex of buildings and courtyards. And the way verse 11 is worded might leave you with the impression that Jesus merely dropped in and took a quick look around, and but it was late. Stores were closing. Merchants were closing up for the day. And And so he just left because it was too late. That was not the case. As I said, this is a massive complex. Some scholars believe that most of today's action took place up here. This is part of what's known as the court of the Gentiles. Three football fields long. Three football fields long. Uh, and 250 yards wide. These columns here are so large that uh, it would take three people to encircle one whole column. Uh, this is a, a a huge place. Some people, other scholars, believe that the action took place here under this pavilion. This is, this is still 350 yards long, but it's much more narrow. It's called the Royal Stoa. Um, by the way, if you have an ESV study Bible in your lap, you can turn a few pages to the right and find this picture uh, in your Bible. Um, so it, it was not that Jesus popped in and, and took a quick look around. What would he have seen? As, as, as Mark says, he looked around at everything. Well, at whatever end of the temple this takes place, Jesus would have found a massive number of merchants, animals, and people. Remember, Passover would be that Friday. This is, uh, this is Sunday night when he is inspecting the temple. Um, uh, and describing the Passover that took place many years later, the Jewish historian Josephus said that over 250 lambs were offered at 250,000 lambs were offered at Passover. That's a quarter of a million sheep that would be sacrificed here. Um, if there were 10 people for every lamb sacrificed there would have been over 2.5 million people celebrating Passover in Jerusalem. Again, these are figures from later years, but probably not much different uh, in this period 30 years before. Jesus would have, what Jesus would have encountered uh, was a huge bustling complex filled with the noise of people, the smell of animals, and the jingle of coins rubbing together. Far more than take a quick look, he inspected the temple complex. Mark says he looked around at everything. This is our first inspection. As as we go further, we see a second inspection in this pair. Uh, Jesus inspects the temple, also inspects the fig tree that's involved. Uh, Look now at verse 12. On the following day, When they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. This sounds confusing. Uh, In March and April of the year, the buds on the fig tree swell into immature figs called pagim, uh, looking perhaps something along those lines. I don't know if you have a fig tree in your yard, but they start out very small, very green. And then, after these uh, swell into immature fruit, then the leaves come. Uh, and so, Mark tells us this uh, fig tree was in full leaf. And so, Uh, once a a fig tree was in full leaf, you would expect to find a lot of unripe figs in in their various stages of development. Uh, This tree seemed to have been a little further along because its uh, foliage was so full. Uh, But those immature figs that the leaves advertised, they could be eaten. And even Some in the Mideast really prefer the immature figs. Um, And this is what Jesus was hoping to find on the particular fig tree, early, immature figs to curb his appetite. But contrary to its appearance, there's no fruit at all, only leaves. This was a deceptive fig tree, if you will, uh, leading Jesus to believe there was something of substance there, but there was nothing. The second inspection was of a fig tree giving the promise of early immature figs because of its leaves but upon inspection there's nothing there. So this makes up our first pair. Two inspections. Uh, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem inspects the temple area on Sunday night and then uh, on Monday uh, stops on his way into the city to inspect this fig tree. Well, this brings us to the next pair. And in the next pair, we'll find two curses. Uh, The second pair consists of two curses. He curses both things that he's just inspected. And again, the first one is the fig tree, as I've put up there. Uh, Look at verse 14 now. And he said to it, "This is the same morning, same, right after he is is inspected. It may no one ever eat fruit from you again." And his disciples heard it. This is what bothers the critics, uh, asserting that this is some abuse of miraculous power, and Jesus appears to be acting out of spite. And that his disappointment at not finding fruit and then cursing the tree is a pretty petty reason to destroy an innocent fig tree. Of course, they've never stopped to wonder and think about it, might not be wise to criticize someone who can curse and destroy a fig tree with his words. I know. But what that kind of criticism betrays is an ignorance of the Old Testament where Israel is referred to as a fig tree more than once. That's why I had us read Jeremiah 24 today. Uh, very clearly, Israel's referred to figs, good figs and really bad figs, rotten figs. But it's not just Jeremiah 24. Um, Jeremiah 8 includes the same comparison. When I would gather them, referring to Israel, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Describing Israel's pathetic spiritual condition in that era. And then... Uh, Joel the prophet Joel writes about what a foreign army has done to Israel and the Lord says this and Joel it was laid waste my vine and splintered it has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree it has stripped off their bark and thrown it down their branches are made white and then then, as I said Jeremiah 24 a clear reference when we take this comparison between Israel and a fig tree into account Jesus actions start to make a little more sense Jesus is doing what many of the Old Testament prophets did he's acting out his message of judgment it's a message of judgment against the barren and fruitless worship at the temple And he makes certain that the disciples hear him curse the fig tree. And this is the first curse. Uh, Hoping to find fruit doesn't find any at all and just leaves so Jesus curses the fig tree as a result. And the curse on the fig tree was symbolic of what came next. The second curse, and the more significant one, Uh, was his curse on the temple that he inspected the day before. Now there are three things. This is a more involved curse. I want to point out three things here about this second curse. I'm going to move it to a new slide for you. The the first thing we see in this curse uh, is disruption. Jesus Disrupts business as usual in the temple courts. He disrupts, to begin with, temple worship. He stops the sale of animals offered as sacrifices. Look at verse 15 now. And they came, still on Monday, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple those traveling from a distance to observe the Passover. They could have brought their own animal. Uh, Of course, that would involve, you know, providing for their animal along the way. Uh, Probably very inconvenient, but much cheaper um, because there's always the possibility that they could arrive with their own animal and the priests would tell them that their animals were not perfect enough or acceptable enough to be offered as a sacrifice. Well, on the other hand, there were animals sold here at the temple. And all of these animals had been pre-approved by the priests uh, ahead of time. Of course, these animals, worthy of sacrifice that they provided were sold at a premium. But where else was a visiting worshiper going to get an animal since his own has been declared unworthy? Uh, Where else was he to find a worthy sacrifice on short notice? But note what Jesus does. He not only stops the merchants from charging these outrageous prices, He stops people from buying them as well. He stops the worshipers. It would have been an enormous disruption of temple worship. He's not just stopping the the selling of animals, the commercial business. He's preventing people from offering a sacrifice in worship. And one scholar notes, day after day, masses of animals were slaughtered there and burnt. And in spite of the thousands of priests, when one of the great festivals came around, the multitude of sacrifices was so great that the priests could hardly cope with them. We're talking a, a large number of animals, Uh, and a large number of people who've come but are unable to sacrifice. Uh, So this is the first disruption we find here. We also find that he disrupts temple income. Uh, Verse 15 goes on to say, And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. In addition to selling animals, Other merchants were present who exchanged foreign coins for coins to pay the temple tax. Exodus 30 commanded that every male worshiper over 20 years old had to pay a half shekel at the temple, which is called the temple tax. But most people came with foreign shekels that had an image stamped on them. Because they had an image of someone stamped on them, they were viewed as idolatrous and so those weren't allowed to be offered in, as the temple tax. And so they had to exchange them. They used shekels from Tyre, which were pure metal, and had no image on them. Uh, so in order to pay the temple tax, a visiting worshiper would have to exchange his foreign shekels for these Tyrian shekels. Did my mic cut off? It's just my head cut off. Sorry. Well, they had to exchange their shekels for these acceptable shekels. And of course, the exchange rate was huge. I mean, where else were you going to get acceptable shekels? Again, note what Jesus does. He completely disrupts this. Disrupting this stream of income from, for the temple. And then there's the last disruption, and that's temple profanity. I don't mean that people were cussing on temple grounds. I mean they were taking what was sacred and making it profane or common or everyday. How are they doing this? Look at verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. They were selling animals, they were exchanging currency. And it seems that the temple courts had also become a shortcut for all kinds of foot traffic. Their um, temple app showed them which was the quickest way to, I don't know. Uh, it had turned into some kind of delivery route for people transporting goods. They, And in this way, they're profaning this sacred place for something common and everyday. Uh Treating what was set apart and sacred as ordinary. So Jesus stops this practice. So this is what the first curse is made of. Disrupts temple worship, temple income, and temple profanity. Look, put these three together. Stay with me now. When you combine those three disruptions, what we find is that Jesus is not so much cleansing the temple, but completely shutting it down. Jesus is not curing temple worship from its abuses. Jesus was cursing temple worship for its barrenness. And a passage that's even named Jesus Cleanses the Temple really not so much him cleansing it. He's, he's not trying to reform the practices. He's closing the temple. What possible reason could Jesus have for doing this? Well, he goes on, and that's the second thing. He tells them why. He gives the reasons behind these actions of his. And the first reason that he makes this curse on the temple similar to the fig tree It's because the temple was meant to include all nations. Look at verse 17 now. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Many who interpret this event focus on the phrase a house of prayer. And they see these actions of Jesus as his attempt to restore the temple to its proper function. And they see in this event Jesus bringing an end to buying and selling in the temple and restoring it to what it was designed for, to, to worship the one true God of Israel and call on his name. And so this has become the way most of us interpret this event. And, and certainly these practices did need to end. But I don't believe that's, that reform is what's behind his actions. I believe his rejection of temple worship altogether is what drove him. He's quoting from Isaiah 56. And Isaiah 56 is all about including those in Israel's worship who would usually have been excluded. And so uh, any eunuch normally excluded from Israel, Israel's worship because of his imperfection bodily would be included when they believed. And wow, this is exactly what we see in Acts chapter 8. Remember Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? Those with disabilities would never be allowed to enter the temple to worship because of their, uh, their body was uh, not whole. Uh, and therefore unholy but Isaiah 56 says that they too will have a name in God's house in fact any foreigner who believes who enters into a covenant with God would be welcome in God's house and would be given the privilege of communion with God and so for that reason here sit we all unless you're Jewish this morning and if you are welcome but most of us are not And so this is talking about you and me. This isn't what the temple had become. Oh, far from it. I mean the temple had become the center of Israel's religious life and a symbol of its identity as a nation. This is like their flag. Uh, It had religious and political significance. Uh, the, The um, the significance of the temple was, was just enormous to an Israelite. And the Jewish people believed that when the Messiah came, he would indeed the, cleanse the temple. But he would cleanse the temple of Gentiles. That he would root them all out. Jesus is not that kind of Messiah. He doesn't clear the temple of Gentiles. He clears the temple for the Gentiles. Listen to this comment on Isaiah 56. Uh, Isaiah 56 speaks of the extension of God's salvation to people who formerly were excluded from it. The temple and covenant are not reserved exclusively for Israel, but include all nations, eunuchs, foreigners, and Gentiles, and you and me. So he curses the temple. One reason is because it was meant, it was intended to be a house of prayer for all nations. He goes on to say, he he says this um, uh, in, what verse were we in? Uh, Verse 17, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? And he continues, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is the second reason he cleanses the temple he's quoting jeremiah here and and this disruption this curse that jesus has enacted or acted out in front of everyone specifically aimed at the high priests and the scribes who who we'll see in the next verse high priests were sadducees uh high class uh, higher class wealthy class and the scribes experts in the law were pharisees uh uh, sticklers for Jewish law and tradition they were the ones who allowed this activity to go on in the temple they were the ones essentially robbing worshippers through their outrageous prices and exchange rate and Jesus' curse was not a curse on the Jewish people as a whole but on the temple and those who allowed the practices there to continue And so he curses the temple because it's become a hideout for robbers. And the chief priests and and the scribes feel at home there and hidden away. It's their hideout. And they are making money hand over fist. It's not dissimilar to what Eli's sons did in 1 Samuel. And these are the reasons behind Jesus' curse because it's not at all what it was designed for. And then briefly here, uh, we see the third thing in, in this curse on the temple is, is the effect or the results it had. Um, first, there's a result among, among the people he's just accused of being robbers, those in charge. Look at verse 18 now. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. Jesus has challenged their very authority. He has has stopped the activities that they said were okay to proceed with. He has presented himself as the king in the passage before, and now he is bringing the kingdom of God right in front of their faces, acting as the king, and bringing these practices to a halt. At least on this day, they're at a halt. Priests could not tolerate this. And so they began looking for a way to destroy Jesus. And then there's a result from the crowd as well. Look at the end of verse 18. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. That word can refer to amazement at a good thing. It can refer to uh, being stupefied, shocked profoundly unsettled the people who have watched this. They're disturbed by what Christ has done. What is he doing? It it needs to be beside yourself. Uh, So much that you nearly use your mental composure. Why would they be shocked at what Jesus has, has just done? It's because Jesus, by his actions, has just called into question Something commanded in the law of Moses. The daily offering at the temple. He's disrupted the daily offering by driving out the merchants as well as those who were there to make the daily offering. This is, the daily offering brought atonement and cleansing from sin. Jesus made it clear he's not come to reform temple worship, but to end it. And through his death on the cross, he brings worship at the temple to an all-time conclusion. I, I pray that you see this. There is an event written in uh, an, an event that is recorded in three of the gospels. The curtain that separates the holy place to the most holy place, the huge curtain, is torn from top to bottom, as though God were just ripping it in half opening way to access to him this is what christ has done so we see two curses next fig tree and then his enacted parable about the fig tree he acts out this same curse upon the temple two curses Finally, we come to the third set of things, the third pair. That's two outcomes. Two outcomes. What are the outcomes of the curses? Well, the first outcome we encounter is uh, the uh, the outcome for the fig tree in verse 19. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree. Withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed has withered. Please note the complete and total destruction of this tree. Uh, He says that it's withered away all the way to its roots. There was no attempt to dig around the tree, fertilize the tree so that it might grow. It was too late for that, and its destruction is complete. And like Jesus' actions before, this is symbolic of what would happen to the temple. And to see the outcome uh, for the temple, we need to flip over a page or two to chapter 13. Follow me to chapter 13, and where you'll see what what becomes of the temple? We'll, we'll uh, talk about these at length when we get to chapter 13, but just so you can see. Uh, verse 13, uh, Chapter 13, verse 1, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The temple that I pointed out to you earlier, uh, lots of marble, lots of gold. It was It was gorgeous. Uh, Herod had built this temple, and it was a thing to behold. But verse 2 says, And Jesus said to him, 'Do Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Like the fig tree, it will be withered to its roots. This took place in 70 A.D., when Jerusalem was destroyed, well, slayed siege to, to begin with, the temple was burned and uh, dismantled by the Roman general Titus and the Roman army. Uh, And this is what chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 uh, look forward to, where it's taken apart stone by stone. These are the outcomes. So, I can hear the bubble above your head. I can see the thought bubble above your your head. Well, Pastor Rob, so this is all about destroying temple worship because of Christ's death on the cross. Absolutely. He's bringing it to an end. And this is his symbolic announcement of of doing it. Things probably returned to normal the next day, but he was demonstrating what would become of temple worship. It would stop. What's in it for me? Uh, What difference does this make in my life? Well, simply this. When Jesus did away with worship at the temple in Jerusalem, he replaced it with a new temple. A new temple. And where is this new temple, Pastor Rob? Where is it located? I've not... Maybe you've never heard of it. I put it to you. It's right here. The new temple is us. Can I show you? No mistake. And if I'm bringing up things you know, and you may be saying, well, duh, Pastor Rob, everybody knows this. Or maybe you are thinking, I need to be reminded of this. I'm not I I don't know what you're talking about. Follow me just to a couple different places. I'm going to read a couple different accounts and this isn't this is no strange idea to the New Testament. I I didn't actually make this up this morning. This is a uh a, a study theme. The first place is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. If you've got a Bible and and can Oh, just wake your fingers up to turn a few pages to the right. 2 Corinthians 6, and I'll begin reading in verse 14. If you're not turning, then listen and hang with me till I get to the end of this passage. And coincidentally, the, in my Bible, the paragraph heading is called The Temple of the Living God. And Paul begins, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Verse 15. What accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We are the temple of God. God dwells among his people. And then just a, uh, a small tiny smidgen of, of pages. Look at that. Just three or four to the right. And uh, Go to Ephesians chapter 2. And we hear the same thing. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. This is one of my favorite parts. Of, it has to be my favorite part in the book of Ephesians. It is so profound. Verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that's us by the way, unless you're a Jewish person here with us today, welcome. Um, Therefore remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, circumcision, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that is, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that is, Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God And that's why Paul says again and again, there's no longer Jew and Gentile. We are all in Christ. Yes, God is going to save a humongous number of Jewish people at the end. Uh, No worries. He still has many Jewish people he will draw to himself. Where's the temple of, of God located now? Where's temple worship take place Friend, I, I I plead with you to see this. Among us. Where does God meet with his people? Among us. I could go on. Let me just give you one more. Revelation twenty-one. I think this is the uh, truly great one. This is when the temple's finally finished. You know, the temple is in the process of being built as, as new people come to Christ, another brick in the wall, so to speak. Um, but Revelation 21 describes that day when the temple will be finally done. 21, verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God neither shall there be mourning nor crying and pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Wow! Do we have to go to a temple? No. We go to God through Christ. We go to God through Jesus Christ. We begin that by trusting in Him as our Savior and Lord, by putting our faith in his atoning death on the cross. Is that something you've done? And then we have the privilege. And wow, such a privilege that we can gather here today knowing that God is here. He makes his dwelling with his people here. on Sunday morning, Earlier today in Siliguri, God made his presence among uh, Ashish's church in Siliguri. And in other parts of town today, God is making his presence known in other assemblies of believers. God is with them. He has made his dwelling among us. Look, hey, okay, I'm going to be a little edgy. I mean, you need a reason to come to church? Are, Are you just so darn tired that you can't roll out of bed and come and be in the presence of the Lord. He makes his dwelling among His people. This is true as individuals. He indwells us by His Spirit. He is with us here today by His Spirit. He makes his dwelling among us. In a, in a unique way, we, we sing our praises to Him. We hear from his word. We cry out to him in prayer. We remember the death of his son through uh, the Lord's Supper, which we are going to in just a moment. The Lord has made his dwelling among us. It is the church, Christ's church, is a profound thing to give your life to because this is where God meets us. And he meets us every time we gather as his people. Jesus, let us see the truth of what you did in Mark 11. You weren't just cleansing the temple. You were about to close it down forever. Through your death on the cross. Thank you, Father, for that great picture of the temple curtain being ripped from top to bottom. Thank you that we can approach you now, not through a priest, not through an animal sacrifice, but through the perfect sacrifice of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone here who does not yet know you, who has not yet put his faith and trust in Christ's death on the cross uh, to remove their sin, to have their sin forgiven. Father, draw them to you. Oh and and Lord Jesus, as as believers, I pray that you would thrill us with this truth that uh, alone, but especially here, when we're gathered together as as a local assembly. You meet us. I pray that we would know the reality of this and rejoice in it. Thrill us, Lord, that you have chosen to draw near and dwell with your people. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.